Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Emily K. Sims. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana University, and uh, she's looking at issues uh, surrounding pediatric endocrinology. So, Emily, thanks for coming. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Good. Well, tell me about your work. What's, what's it involved? Yeah. So like you said, I'm a, I'm a physician scientist. So I'm a pediatric endocrinologist is the physician part. So I see patients, pediatric patients. So kids with hormone problems and diabetes specifically. And then my research is focused on diabetes. So I have a lab that does very basic science research. And I also do clinical and translational research that kind of is mostly focused on the beta cell in diabetes. So, you know, you have a pancreas and your pancreas has these cells called beta cells that make insulin. And and basically all forms of diabetes, beta cells don't make insulin like they're supposed to. And so because of that, you have high blood sugars and and you need to get treated. And I, I tend to focus on type one diabetes and that's autoimmune disease where your beta cells um, get attacked by your, your immune system. And so then you don't have as many beta cells anymore. And a lot of times we think more about kids getting type one diabetes, although adults can also get type one diabetes and you end up having to take insulin injections to replace that insulin that your, your beta cells were making. And my lab is really interested in understanding like how those beta cells are, are contributing to how type one diabetes develops. You know, you're in a good position. You seek patients clinically, and then you're looking at research. What kind of disparities do you see in the clinic versus what research says? surrounding type one? Oh yeah, that's really an interesting question. So the thing that's changing the most in clinic right now, I think is technology, right? So there are some really exciting things happening with diabetes technology right now that are, that are really changing the way that we provide patient care. So, you know, they're coming out with better and better sensors to sense your blood sugar. So instead of having to do a finger stick, you can wear a device that continuously tells you what your blood sugar is. And that's really cool. And then also they're our newer insulin pumps that talk to the sensors and can adjust the insulin they're giving you, which are also really cool. And, and both of those can really help improve patient quality of life, I think. But at the end of the day, there are still kind of all of these challenges associated, even with this really cool technology, either with getting the technology or with actually implementing that in your life. And I think it kind of helps or reminds us as healthcare providers that, you know, all of these things are not a cure for type one diabetes. Insulin's amazing. It's life-saving, but it's not a cure. And really the, the kind of optimal solution would be if we could find a way to actually fix the underlying cause of the disease so that people can make their own insulin because our own beta cells work a lot better than, than all of these things that we're doing for people in clinic. Well, one basic premise, which you mentioned earlier, is that uh, the beta cells are attacked by the immune system in type one. But I've heard that, I guess, when they look at cadaver pancreases, they just don't see the beta cells. And I don't know if they see scarring or not in the places where they used to be, but the disappearance of them, I don't know, is it, do they actually disappear? I mean, do we know that the immune system's attacking them if we can't get, 
you know, pancreases of, uh, of, let's say, people that are recently deceased or even alive to look at it? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, we there is a big repository now um, called the NPOD repository. It stands for the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes. And it has really um, been amazing to help us understand better what's going on in type 1 diabetes. So they are able to get pancreatic tissue from organ donors with more recent onset diabetes, but also people with longer standing disease. And the kind of the kind of classic dogma in type 1 diabetes is it's this autoimmune disease that leads to beta cell destruction. And that definitely happens. But what we learned when I was kind of learning to take care of people with diabetes is that by the time you present like 80% of your beta cells have been destroyed by your immune system. But through studies through NPOD, we've been able to understand that actually probably there are beta cells that are left over in most people who have even longstanding type one diabetes, but it is a pretty, a much smaller number than what you would see um, in a person who doesn't have diabetes. And then the other kind of interesting thing that really ties into what my, my research is about is that in addition, we look at biomarkers of how beta cells work. So um, kind of telling you if the beta cells are sick or they're not working very well. And, and one marker is a marker of this kind of really immature insulin that beta cells make. And even in people um, who have had type one diabetes for like decades, really long time, and you can't measure insulin that they're making from their own beta cells in their blood anymore, you can still detect this immature form of insulin um, in their blood and almost like 90% of people. So there are, there are still some cells there, but they're just not working very well at all. So it would be great if we could figure out a way to make them work better and make insulin on their own again. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. So normally immature insulin is made first by beta cells and then it matures inside the cell to be yeah. in a useful form. Right. Yeah. And then it releases that mature insulin into your blood, but in a beta cell, that's not working very well. It has a hard, it's harder for it to convert that immature insulin to the mature form of insulin. And so you'll start to see more and more of what's in your blood in the immature form. Well, what's the difference between the mature and immature insulin? Like the you know, physiological doesn't work as well. It doesn't, it doesn't, it has much, much smaller percentage of the physiologic activity that mature insulin does. So it doesn't act as well to kind of decrease your blood sugar or allow your different tissues to take up the sugar in your blood. But like, you know, why is it, uh, is it just not a bioavailable form of insulin? Like, like, again, what is physically the difference between mature and immature insulin? Is it the folding of the peptide? Is it like, yeah, what is it so, that is different? So part of it is folding, but then also within the beta cell, there are these different enzymes that act on that immature form of insulin to cleave it into insulin and C-peptide. So the immature form is like a much bigger molecule with kind of extra parts on there. And there's folding kind of ahead of that step too. And so it depends on kind of there, there are multiple stages of that processing that occurs. And so, you know, yeah, the folding can go wrong. And so it might not work right because the folding didn't work the right way, or maybe it didn't get cleaved into the insulin and C-peptide like it normally does. And where does the maturation happen? It happens inside the beta cells? Yeah, it's, there are these secretory granules that get released that normally have the insulin and the C-peptide in them. And, you know, it could be, and, and that's where that, that process normally occurs. So is there an idea of how long this maturation process takes and like what signaling occurs to speed the maturation process? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I don't know the answer to that, you know, from start to finish, how long it takes. And, and it may be that part of what we're seeing in these immature, in these um, people with longstanding type one diabetes 
and the immature insulin in their blood, it may be that what's happening is just kind of because they have high blood sugar, as soon as those beta cells that are left are making any insulin granules, they're just getting kind of shot out into your bloodstream and they don't have time to sit there and mature at all. But yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. It would just be interesting to see. So people are making this immature form and it's, I guess it has to be made by beta cells, but I mean, how many, I don't know. Is there a lot of it being made, a little bit being made? Like, what can you tell about the nature of the immature insulin that tells you something about the condition of the beta cells? Yeah, definitely. Like the amount of the cells that are left there that are kind of these beta cells that are working not very well. I think it's, it's very clearly like reduced in people with longstanding disease. So it's not like you have all of those beta cells that are there and they're just not working at all. You know, I think for sure in type one diabetes, there's autoimmune destruction of beta cells and the number of beta cells that you have left is really reduced if you've had type one diabetes for a long time. But I, there are small numbers of cells that are there that potentially, you know, if you can make work better then a person can make more of their own insulin. And we know that, you know, even if you just make a little bit of your own insulin, that really goes a long way to help with your diabetes. If you require insulin, just because you require less doses of exogenous insulin or insulin shots. And so, you know, your own body is just much better at, at regulating that than, you know, a, a doctor is or a person is at guessing the doses that you're giving. And so, you know, for example, if your body is kind of sensing that the insulin level is too high, it'll stop, stop making insulin, right? Versus if you gave yourself a shot, that insulin's there. And so you're much less likely to have low, serious, low blood sugars. If you're making your own, some of your own insulin, even if you have to get a little bit of extra in the shots. And we know that people who make their own insulin are less likely to have complications from diabetes too. So I think there's definitely benefit to improving that amount of insulin that people are still making if they have longstanding diabetes, even if it's not kind of to the level of a person who doesn't have diabetes. Well, I guess if someone figured out the maturation process, perhaps you could give to type ones some kind of patch or add on with, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Is it, the uh, immature insulin is found to be what free floating in the yeah. fluids in the blood. Right. So is that normal? So like in a normal process, would you even see any levels of immature insulin in the blood or would it stay inside the beta cells waiting for maturation and then be released? You can detect a little bit in, in everyone, even people who don't have diabetes, but it's just the relative amounts of how much is there relative to mature insulin is, a, is higher in people who have diabetes and those beta cells are really stressed. But kind of alongside what you were saying, you know, one thing that we're interested in is drugs that improve beta cell health so that that processing um, is more efficient and they're able to convert more of that immature insulin to the mature insulin within the beta cell and then release more mature insulin. So I think, you know, something like that isn't going to be something that's going to treat somebody with type one diabetes and cure diabetes by itself. But what it, where it could be really useful is in combination potentially with, for example, like an immunomodulatory drug that kind of targets your immune system, but maybe, you know, someone's kind of already in the process a little bit. So they've lost some of their beta cells and their beta cells are really stressed. If, if you find someone like that, I think you could potentially also treat them with a drug like that. And, and it might make that drug that targets their immune system more successful. Well, I mean, what if there was a device that, you know, let's say, I'm just going to imagine like a patch and it has beta cells in it and, you know, the blood, the patch sees the blood and the immature insulin that's there goes into these beta cells and matures and comes back out and serves as an insulin source for the body. Do you think anything like that would be useful or possible? 
I think that you'd have to really, there's kind of very specific conditions for that processing to occur. You know, there's a very kind of specific pH and it happens within like this special granule. And so I'm not sure I'd have to, I'd have to think about, you know, like how that those cells would take up that insulin and, and repackage it into granules. You know, that's not a process that the beta cell kind of normally does. It normally makes it on its own and processes it into granules. So yeah, I don't know like how it would get into that same secretory pathway, but if there was, you know, some way that you could engineer some synthetic environment (laughs) to recapitulate that, maybe it would be something that would be possible. So what have you, uh, I don't know if you personally observed, you know, the cadaver pancreases, but the project, the, the biobank you talked about, like what has been observed about the stuff in the biobank? You know, like what, when you look at a cadaver of a number of people that had type one that passed away, like, you know, again, do you see any beta cells? Do you see scarring? Like, what does the pancreas look like? Yeah. So so there have been a lot of really interesting things that people have figured out from these studies. So, so one thing that's been a really important finding is that type one diabetes and in people, the pathology looks different than in a lot of the preclinical models. Like there's a famous mouse model of type one diabetes. And if you look in the islets of those mice, like if you take their pancreas and, and look at the tissue staining of the, the sections, almost all of the islets have lots and lots of immune cells kind of all surrounding them and attacking um, the beta cells. But in people, we don't necessarily see that. It's it's, it's much less common to see those immune cells attacking the islets. And there are other kinds of, kinds of differences in the pathology that, that are, are different between people and mice. And so it's really kind of emphasized, you know, that it's important to actually study people as well as some of these preclinical models. So that's been one big important thing that's, that's come out of that. Another thing has been this kind of idea that a lot of times there are beta cells that are left in pancreas tissues from people with type one diabetes. Another really important finding is that we, I think it's really contributed to our understanding that probably type one diabetes isn't the same in everybody. We see a lot of differences from individual donors in the disease process. Like for example, in the amount of beta cells that are left or the type of immune cells that are in those islets and surrounding the beta cells can, can be different in different kinds of donors, just in, in some of those things we understand. So for example, people who get type one diabetes when they're little kids seem to have a different course of disease than people who get it when they're grownups. And, and some of the things we don't understand what the differences are. So that's been a really important thing that's come out of that donor tissue. I could go on and on. <laughs> No, no, that's good. These are all like very interesting things. Yeah. 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 What do they look like? These, these, these pancreases that looks different from a healthy person. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah. So another thing is that that's, that I think is something that people actually observed a really long time ago and that it's kind of I don't want to say forgot about, but people kind of didn't talk about for a while and then has really become evident with some of these more recent studies is that in people with type one diabetes, the, the other part of the pancreas is also affected. So their pain, their actual pancreas is smaller um, than a person who doesn't have diabetes and there's inflammation in the pancreas tissue as well. And they probably have some exocrine dysfunction. So it's some dysfunction of, of those ducts and, and what they secrete in the, in the pain, the other pancreas tissue, that's not the islet, which is, is kind of interesting and is kind of opened this whole area of research into understanding the connection between those other tissues in the pancreas and the, the islet. Another kind of really interesting thing that's come out of tissue studies 
And, and I think a large part of that in pod repository staining that people have done of beta cells, this is actually in both kinds of diabetes. They've kind of identified this, that people call it de-differentiation or loss of beta cell identity. So beta cells kind of don't look exactly like what we think a beta cell should look like anymore. They kind of lose expression of a lot of the genes that typically define like what a beta cell is. And so there's been a lot of interest. People kind of think of this now as like another form of beta cell failure. They kind of lose their identity. They don't make insulin as well. And there's been a lot of debate about why this happens. And some people think that it might be kind of a a compensatory thing that people's beta cells do to kind of try to escape autoimmune attack so that their immune system doesn't recognize it as a beta cell and doesn't try to destroy it as much. So that's kind of been a really interesting thing too, I think. So the beta cells de-differentiate themselves? Like, how can you tell? What are they? Yeah. So what, what function do they appear to take on? Now. Yeah. So a lot of times, so, you know, there's, there's multiple kinds of cells in the islet, right? There's a beta cell, but then there are also these alpha cells that make glucagon. There are delta cells and pancreatic polypeptide cells or other kinds of cells in the islet. And so sometimes the cells will take on features of some of the other cells in the islet. So maybe they, they start expressing some alpha cell genes too, or they maybe start making a little bit of glucagon too. They express less insulin than a normal beta cell does. And then there are a lot of genes called transcription factors that cells express that kind of help control all of the different genes that that get turned on in a cell. And so the ones that are kind of classically associated with beta cells will be decreased in those cells that are, that are de-differentiated. So, hmm, okay. Interesting. Is there, I mean, what's the degree of de-differentiation and like, what do these cells most closely resemble? I think they still have features of beta cells, but it's just not like a a regular beta cell, right? So I think a lot of times it looks more like a progenitor cell, you know, maybe like a, you know, as a cell develops in your pancreas and, and becomes an endocrine cell and then further becomes a beta cell that there's a lot of steps, right? And then they decide which kind of cell within your islet it's going to become. And so it's kind of like the, these de-differentiated cells take a few steps back along that pathway. And so they look more like those endocrine progenitor cells. Well, what happens during your life in your pancreas? Like, you you know, do you have a population of beta cells that you're born with and as they die, they're not replaced? Like what's typical? Yeah. So, I mean, you can detect beta cell, like beta cells proliferating and making new beta cells in people, but very, very small numbers. So there have been a few studies looking at beta cell proliferation across the lifespan. And you, you have proliferation kind of when you're very, very young and it really rapidly drops off in people. So it probably, it is true. Like you don't make a lot of more beta cells over your lifespan. Kind of once you get past young childhood, there's probably like an increase in beta cell mass as you grow a little bit in childhood. And then that stops. And as you get older and older, they just don't, don't make any more. And I mean, these kind of de-differentiated cells, you can maybe find like a, a few cells like that in a normal person's pancreas, but they're definitely increased in a lot of these diabetic donor pancreases. Huh. So, so during a person's typical life, again, early on, they'll make more beta cells, but then their population will be stable probably for a while. And it goes down, I would guess, as, uh, as time goes on, right? Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've seen, you know, of course we don't have you know, beta cell mass from a person over time, right? Because if the, if you have someone's pancreas, that means they died and donated their pancreas. So it's all like cross-sectional. But yeah, I would guess in an older adult that your beta cell mass kind of slowly decreases with age. I guess I can't say that that's the case for sure. 
Well, is there a way to have a certain amount of glucose? Like, let's say you fast, and then you have a certain amount of glucose. Yeah, I know that they do glucose tolerance tests, but is there a way to also look at the serum insulin? And then that gives you an idea of maybe, I don't know. Yeah, you can do that. But the problem is that it's hard to tease out in a test like that. It's hard to tease out beta cell mass. So how much beta cells you have there versus beta cell function, right? So for sure in older people, you're more likely to get diabetes. As you get older, your beta cells kind of don't work as well. And so that's why like type two diabetes, which, which is more of a disease, I think of beta cell dysfunction, you know, that gets more and more common as you get older, but it's hard to kind of tease out beta cell mass versus beta cell function there. And people think in type two diabetes, what happens is, you know, people become insulin resistant, mostly due to like gaining a lot of weight. And then the, some people, their beta cells are able to kind of compensate and make lots of extra insulin. But then the people who get type two diabetes, they inherit kind of a a beta cell that's a little bit more sensitive or puny and and kind of can't compensate like that. Right. And so then it, it kind of can't keep up and and make enough insulin in accordance to that insulin resistance. And it becomes easier, easier and easier for you to get type two diabetes as you get older, because people who are older, their beta cells don't work as well. So that's definitely the case. And, and people who have type two diabetes, they, they can have reduced beta cell mass, you know, if they have really severe type two diabetes, but I think that's more related to like having high, high blood sugars like that all the time is actually really bad for your beta cells too. And then, and then you'll have active beta cell death and destruction related to that, like the high blood sugars and inflammation kind of thing. Yeah. How plastic is a beta cell's ability to make insulin? Has that been observed? Plastic meaning like, 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 you know, for a given beta cell, your average beta cell, you know, if stimulated the right way or the wrong way or overstimulated, it can make between X and Y units of insulin typically before it's, it's tapped out. Oh, I have no idea what the total units are, but they're amazing. I mean, they, they secrete tons and tons of insulin over the course of a lifetime. And then that also, you know, genetics have a, has a big part to do with that. Right. Because, you know, some people can gain tons and tons of weight and be really, really insulin resistant and nobody in the family like ever gets diabetes versus other families, you know, you'll see like almost everybody in the family has diabetes. So definitely like that has a huge genetic component. And, and determines a lot of that. The other thing too, that I think is, is, you know, how much damage has kind of been done to those cells in the context of diabetes too. So one thing that happens in type one diabetes, that's really interesting is something called the honeymoon period. And people don't totally understand like why it happens, but what happens is when people are diagnosed with type one diabetes, you have really high blood sugars, right? And then you get started on insulin and, and all that, that, that high blood sugar is really bad for your beta cells. They call it glucose toxicity. They're just, you know, they're making as much insulin as they can. And then it's like really in, inflammatory situation, you know, and, and it's just, they, they kind of poop out. And so they stop making insulin, but then you give them insulin. And I always uh, tell patients, it's like the beta cell can take a deep breath, right? <sighs> and relax a little bit. And then they actually have this, we call it the <coughs> like a clinical remission where those cells start making insulin on their own again. And it doesn't happen in everybody, but it happens in a lot of people with type one diabetes. It's really different um, from person to person. Sometimes it'll last for like a month. Some people will have it for, you know, like a year. And sometimes they can even come off of insulin because those beta cells are able to recover 
and, and make their own insulin again. But, you know, someone who presents maybe further along, there's been more damage, like the beta cell, they don't have as good of a honeymoon period. And, and so the, the cells can't recuperate. So I think how much of that cumulative ongoing damage is a contributing factor in that plasticity you were talking about too. Hmm. Is there any way to, uh, I don't know, tag the beta cells with fluorescent markers or some kind of other marker to tell like, you know, how much insulin they're producing. So you don't have to, you know, the person can yeah, still be alive. Question. Yeah. If, I wish not in a person, <laughs> people have really been trying to do a lot of stuff to, to image beta cell mass, but nobody's come up with a, a great way to do that so far. It's just, it's such a small part of your pancreas, like the contributor to the actual pancreas. It people, it's been really challenging to detect a signal. There was a study, a couple of studies actually that were published a couple of years ago, just doing pancreas MRI and people with diabetes and then people who were at high risk. So they had markers of autoimmunity associated with type one diabetes, and then actually people who were family members of those individuals. And they actually found that the volume of your total pancreas is reduced if you have type one diabetes, which is interesting. It kind of goes along with those studies in the, the biobank of, of pancreas sections that there's an effect on your exocrine pancreas as well as those endocrine cells, because there's no way that just losing beta cells would decrease the total mass of your pancreas. They're just such a small component of it. Well, what percentage of the mass are they? I'm not sure. I mean, less than 10%. It's small, okay. really small. Interesting. What's the main functions of the pancreas? One is, I guess, to secrete, you know, certain digestive enzymes. Yeah, yeah. Into the digestive system. Yeah, it makes stuff to help you. Yeah, it's like digestive enzymes to help you absorb your food. So, you know, a population of people who have trouble with their whole pancreas is people with cystic fibrosis. And so they have like really bad problems with malabsorption and gaining weight because their pancreas doesn't work very well. What about pancreatic cancer? Has that been observed whether the patient knew it or not in these cadaver pancreases, like does it correlate at all with, with type one? Their pancreatic cancer and type one diabetes are not necessarily something that's linked, but there is an increased incidence of like a type two diabetes kind of picture in pancreatic cancer. And I think people don't really understand that link very well. That's a topic that a lot of people are interested in studying. I haven't looked at that as much because pancreatic cancer is really unusual in kids. So it doesn't affect the patients that I study that much. So it hasn't been a research area I've, I've gotten that into. Well, what are the age of the cadaver pancreases that are in this biobank typically? Is it oh yeah, it's, it's all ranges. They have, you know, any, any donor who had diabetes, they, you know, approach that donated their, their pancreas. They, they see if they would be a potential candidate that, you know, it depends on if, if other people are using the tissues for living donors too, right. But, uh, or living organ recipients, I guess, not donors, but they have, they have little kids and they, they have people all, all age ranges up to really high. So what's noticed if you look at, you know, pancreases of different ages, you know, kids versus older people that have had the disease for, let's say decades, there must be some big differences, I would think. Yeah. So, you know, depending on the time that how long it's been since someone diet was diagnosed with diabetes, you see differences in how many beta cells are left, even though there are still beta cells and most people with longstanding disease, there's definitely more, the more proximal you are to diagnosis. The other thing is you're more likely to see the, we call it insulitis. So it's the immune cells that are surrounding the different islets that have the beta cells in them. You're more likely to see that in someone who's closer to diagnosis. You see less of those immune cells as time goes on, probably because there's less of those insulin positive beta cells to attract the immune cells. And so 
the in kid pancreases, the the insulitis, so the type of immune cells that are in those insulitis groups of immune cells can be different. Some people have described that they're more B cells. It's a type of immune cell in those insulitis profiles in, in little kids who get type one diabetes. And actually a really interesting thing is that recently there was a paper about that, that immature form of insulin. It seems like little kids who get diabetes are more likely to have this kind of very characteristic type of immune cell. And they're also more likely to be people who have a really hard time converting that immature form of insulin to the mature form of insulin. And you can see that in those eyelids, you can see where there's a lot, there's, they're in the same place, the immature insulin and the mature insulin. And it's not normally like that. And it kind of tells you that it's not working the right way to convert it. So I don't know. I think it's kind of cool and speaks to the idea. People are talking a lot about this, this idea of people call it like endotypes of type one diabetes. So that the disease is actually probably pretty heterogeneous and there might actually be differences in the pathology or the pathophysiology in different people's type one diabetes. And so, you know, maybe we shouldn't be kind of treating everybody the same, but kind of trying to understand for each person what their type one diabetes looks like and what treatment options might be the best for them. Yeah. Has there ever been any experimentation where like a whole bunch of immature insulin has been injected into like a mouse model or something to see what would happen? Is it taken up? Is it converted? Is it just excreted? Yeah. If you gave a super physiologic dose, what would happen? Yeah. So people have tried, you know, seeing if it's called pro-insulin, the immature insulin like has the same physiologic properties as insulin. And it it, like has a, a, a little bit of it, like a really small percentage, right? So if you, for example, there's like mouse models of really abnormal processing of the immature insulin. And so their, their levels in their blood are really high of that immature form of insulin. And if it's just that they don't convert the immature insulin to the mature insulin, some of those models actually don't have that abnormal blood sugar, because I think that there's so much of that immature insulin in their blood that it's able to to have some of that biologic activity of the mature insulin, but it, it would really need to be like super, super, super high, you know, to accomplish the same thing. Well, I mean, you know, like when people take insulin, they're taking, I guess, just a mature form, but has anyone thought about or tried a formulation of like, I don't know, nine parts mature, one part immature to see if that has a, a different physiological effect? Maybe it works better. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody has ever tried that, like thought about that with the immature form of insulin, but it is, you know, so that immature form of insulin, it gets converted into insulin and C pep or cleaved into insulin and C peptide. Right. And so people normally think of C peptide kind of as, I mean, I don't want to say garbage, <laughs> but it's kind of like the insulin is the important part. And the C peptide is kind of just a byproduct, Right. And there are some people who have, have argued that maybe like that C peptide has physiologic relevance and there used to be, I mean, that used to be a, an area that was pretty active, but it, it kind of hasn't really borne out. Like it doesn't seem like you can like just C peptide by itself really does that much when people have tested it. So I don't know, but I have never, that's an interesting idea to think about the, the pro insulin on its own. I'm not sure because normally it's such a small percentage of what ends up in the blood, you know, but C peptide is pretty high normally. So I can see why people would think that might have physiologic relevance, but it just seems like it hasn't really panned out in the, the studies people have done. Well, what about someone that has hyperinsulinemia, you know, they're, they're chronically for years and very high insulin. What does that look like? You know, what does their pro-insulin profile look like? Their C, C peptide. I mean, like, has any of that dynamic been looked at? Maybe so, insulin resistant, like, you know, yeah. no one, so far as I know, can really answer why insulin resistance occurs and what it, what it is, you know? 
Yeah. So people who have insulin resistance, a lot of times they do have increases in their pro-insulin relative to their um, insulin or their C-peptide. But I think that that's probably related to the fact that their beta cells, because they're insulin resistant, their beta cells are having to make tons of insulin, right? To kind of keep up with that insulin resistance and, and keep their blood sugar normal. And so they're having to work extra hard. So I would guess that that's reflective of that those beta cells are under like extra stress because of that. Yeah. And then insulin itself, I mean, it's essentially it folds like a protein, right? It's a peptide, but it can fold. Yeah. Yeah. So when it gets, it gets formed, it gets formed as like a pre-pro-insulin and then it goes into the endoplasmic reticulum, which is like where proteins get made and it gets folded and a bunch of disulfide bonds get formed. And then it goes out into like your Golgi and the secretory granules. And that's where those other proteins work to kind of cleave it into insulin and Z-peptide. So again, in people with hyperinsulinemia, do they see misfolding of even the mature insulin? Like what are some other hallmarks? Yeah, so of, of if you're in, in people with lots of insulin resistance, you can have misfolding of insulin, but people who are kind of like experts in that organelle of the ER where the, the insulin gets folded, the endoplasmic reticulum would, I think most of them would say that that misfolded insulin probably ends up getting degraded and doesn't actually get put into the secretory granules to get further processed. If, if things are working the way it's supposed to now, you know, is there a possibility that something goes awry in some people, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think. But there's kind of a degradation system within the cell where that misfolded insulin should get degraded and not get released. What are the building blocks of it? What are the precursors of it? Has that been studied? Yeah, so it gets gets translated as pre-pro-insulin, like from the insulin gene. Yeah, so it gets, you have insulin gene that like the insulin mRNA, right? Insulin mRNA gets translate, translated into pre-pro-insulin and then pre-pro-insulin, it like there's a signal sequence on there that gets kind of cleaved off and that's what goes into the endoplasmic reticulum. There it gets like folded and, and you form like the disul, there are disulfide bonds that get formed and then it gets um, further processed by the processing enzymes in the Golgi in the grain. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just wonder, are there enzymes and things and cofactors that upregulate insulin conversion, you know, to maturity or? So definitely there are different situations that affect expression of those processing enzymes. So one thing our lab showed was that if you treat beta cells with inflammatory cytokines, so to mimic like a pro-inflammatory, like islet microenvironment, those processing enzymes, their expression gets decreased so that the um, processing within the cell gets decreased. Like a dedifferentiated beta cell, those processing enzymes are decreased too. So the processing of pro-insulin to mature insulin gets, isn't as, as good in those cells. Okay. So there are enzymes that, that help upregulate. Yeah. Are they, are they taken in by the, I mean, what's taken in by the beta cell in order to create those enzymes to the end beta cell or does yeah. anyone know where they come from? They're- they're pretty, those, those enzymes are pretty like consistently in beta cells that are like looking like beta cells, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're almost always expressed because making insulin is such a like key feature of a beta cell, right? Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering about, you know, other parts of the process, but I know we're getting really deep into the, the biochemistry of it. In particular with your research, like what, what are you trying to figure out over the next year or so? Like what are some of your goals, short-term ones? Yeah. So I would really like to, one thing I'm really interested in is understanding like how beta cell health is changing in type one diabetes. So there is, there was recently 
a, a really exciting prevention study. Actually, I guess it's been like a year, maybe since it was published year and a half, year, two years that showed that this immunomodulatory drug that targets T cells was able to delay the onset of type one diabetes and people who are really high risk by two years. And so right now I'm working on a project looking at how could we use understanding how beta cell health is looking to kind of shorten those intervention studies, because like to do these prevention studies, it takes uh, like a really, a really long time, right? That trial took like seven years, I think for them them to kind of recruit the right people because it's hard to identify these at-risk people. And then you've got to wait for enough people to have for enough time to have passed for enough people to develop diabetes. And so it's, it's long, it takes a really long time. So, you know, I think it would be great if we could understand beta cell health and, and use markers to, to speed up that process so we can test more things for diabetes prevention and, and get some of these therapies to patients um, sooner. So that's the thing I'm working on that I think will be really exciting and, and hopefully translate to patients. And then also using these markers like the immature insulin and blood to understand like what's happening with beta cells better so that we can predict people with type one diabetes, like way before we get disease. So we can intervene hopefully when they have lots of beta cells left that, you know, aren't, aren't like in so much trouble so that some of these therapies will be more effective. And then I think another big thing is kind of using those to kind of dissect out that heterogeneity. So like understanding that there, there are subpopulations of people whose beta cells are, are really, really not working very well and targeting that with like unique treatments in addition to some of the more traditional things that target your immune system and see if we can make prevention and, and diabetes treatment work better. Well, at least on, you know, what if you did regular blood work on type one and type two diabetics, you looked at pro-insulin levels, insulin levels, and the C-peptide levels all three. And you looked at how that changes before and after meals, let's say, and, you know, intensively. And then you just did it like once a week over a period of time, you might see like the conversion fraction of, you know, pro-insulin to mature insulin change, go up or down as someone's condition changes. Maybe those three factors would provide like, you know, I don't know, this conversion ratio that might be useful. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the problem is, like, then what do you do with that information right now? Right? Like, I think if we had a therapy that we thought was changing, like the underlying like course of disease, then that would be really helpful. But right now, all we have is insulin. I mean, in clinical practice, not in research, um, but in clinical practice, and already, you know, you want to just use the insulin to kind of make somebody's blood sugars as as ideal as possible, right? But yeah, I mean, I think long term, like if you're giving someone something to try and stop that like destruction of their beta cells, you can monitor those things. And then when the, the amount of the immature insulin in, in your blood is, seems like it's really high related to the mature insulin, you could say, Oh, that person's beta cells are really stressed out and maybe it's time to like treat them again or something like that. Right. Yeah. I just think, you know, if, if you have more of an understanding of how the progression happens in someone with, you know, with diabetes, then, you know, by looking at these factors, like if you saw a dramatic change, in the conversion of pro-insulin to insulin, then you could start to look then say, all right, what's all the factors involved in that and how can we modulate that? And we see that it's going up or down with progression of disease. So maybe we can intervene instead of just this one tool that's like a band-aid at the end, the insulin. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it can really give us insight into like how the, the disease is changing in that person, for sure. The natural history of that person's disease. Okay. Well, very good. So, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? 
Oh, well, you can, you can, you know, I don't have a lab website or anything. That's something I should probably work on, (laughs) but you can Google me or there is a lot of research that I'm also involved in through type one diabetes trial net. A lot of the immunomodulatory um, therapies that, that our group at IU test is it's through trial net, which is this big clinical network. It's an international network of clinical centers with really the ideas to implement type one diabetes intervention and prevention trials. And so they have a lot of updates on, on the exciting work using disease modifying therapies in type one diabetes. So I would definitely encourage people to go there. People are, who are affected by type one diabetes, I encourage them to get family members screened for those markers of autoantibodies that kind of identify you as being at higher risk because we can monitor them for diabetes development so that we can pick it up really early, but also because we're starting to have these options for trials for prevention, where there are therapies that are actually delaying disease. So it's really cool. Okay. Well, very good. Emily, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you. It was fun. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.